We've already had our prayer, so would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14? In our previous lesson, we found that Abraham was a peacemaker. He took the role of a peacemaker. In this lesson, he is a warrior. Kind of go from one extreme to the other. When God enlists us in his school of faith, remember we've talked about the fact that we're in school all of our lives if we're Christians because we're enrolled in God's school of faith. Well, if we're enrolled in that school because we are a born-again Christian, then there is no telling what challenge he may cause us to encounter from one day to the next. Everybody said amen to that, right? (laughs) The walk of faith is never dull because new experiences and challenges are brought to us around every new corner. And this is because, because God desires for us to be mature in every aspect of life. He knows that maturity cannot come without challenges and without new experiences and without a variety of different circumstances. One day he might send us a famine, and then the very next day he might have a spouse carried off. Next thing we know, we might find ourselves in the midst of strife with a brother or sister in Christ or confronted with the responsibility of restoring a fallen brother or sister in Christ. And all of these tests of faith are exactly what was was encountered by Abraham in just the very first few years of his Christian walk with the Lord. But each of these circumstances was used to fashion him into the great man of faith that he was. There were actually several tests which were given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. And the first was what we could call a compassion test. Compassion test. Would Abraham have genuine compassion toward a sheep which had strayed or who had strayed? Lot, you know, by this time had fully moved into the very, very wicked city of Sodom. Would Abraham go to the rescue of his nephew even though it was Lot's own selfishness and materialism which had gotten him into the mess that he was in when he and all the other citizens of Sodom were carried off as captives by an invading coalition of four kings? That's one thing we will look at this morning. Now, another major test, which we find in Genesis chapter 14, which was encountered by Abraham, is what we could call the courage test. So we have the compassion test, then the courage test. He had not proved, remember, uh, to be too courageous when he went down into Egypt, Egypt, because there, for fear of losing his own life, who had he put in peril? Right, his own wife, Sarah. So now, would he have courage to go to battle against an enemy, an army which was incredibly larger than his own army, in order to rescue Lot? That's what we'll look at this morning. And then yet a third test, which we find in this chapter, is the completion test. So we have the compassion test, the courage test, and the completion test. Would Abraham finish his task against the enemy until there was complete victory so that, you know, there would be no possibility of the enemy's return? Or would he be content with just merely running them off for a while? So the great teacher, we're enrolled in a school, so we obviously have a teacher. Who is the great teacher? Who's the greatest teacher there ever was? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The great teacher, the Lord Jesus, continued with his examinations in the life of Abraham in order to stretch his faith, stretch the faith of his servant. And as we shall discover in this lesson, Abraham scored very, very high on these tests. So our outline... Yeah, I think I better get rid of this coffee or I'll be spilling it on some transparency. Thank you. Our outline for this 37th lesson in our Genesis study, which I've entitled The Dead Sea War, uh, is consists of three parts. We'll look, first of all, at the rebellion of five kings, then the raid of four kings, and finally the rescue of Abraham. So let's begin by looking at the rebellion of five kings. And for this, we'll read Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. And bear with me because I didn't have a whole lot of practice because my one daughter from New York, going to the Word of Life Bible Institute, is home. And uh, I didn't practice as much as I would have liked to on pronouncing these names. This is a, this is a hard chapter with names. All right, chapter 14, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Keterlamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Didn't do as bad as I thought. <laughs> Chapter 14 of Genesis is very interesting, uh, very interesting, really. And uh, one of the reasons why it's very interesting is because it contains so many words for the very first time in Scripture. Some of those words that we see for the very first time are words such as priest. First time we see priest, and it's speaking of the king of Sodom, better known as, who knows? I mean, not Sodom, Salem, Mel, Melchizedek. We find the word priest for the first time in this chapter. We find the word king for the first time in this chapter. The word tithes for the first time. The names Hebrew for the first time. Also the name Elyon, which means the most high God. Also for the first time we have a combination of bread and wine in the scripture. And we have for the first time some other things, but in addition the numbers 12 and 13. Also... Very interesting. Genesis chapter 14, and I bet you didn't know this, and you can ask your husbands this one. Genesis chapter 14 contains the very first written record of a battle between nations. Not only in the Bible, but the very first written record of a battle or a war between nations in all of ancient literature. This is it. The very first written. Now, there are pictures of battles that would precede this battle, but there is no prior written record of any war between nations or battle between nations other than this. This is the very first one. And you know why I find that interesting? I should wait and save this for next week. Uh, and we're calling this war because it took place at the Dead Sea. We're calling it the Dead Sea War. Okay, that's the title for our message. But why I find this very interesting is because this war consists of five kings versus four kings, all right? How much is five and four? Nine, okay? Then there is one more king who comes to the rescue of Lot. He's a sheik. He's a king over quite a big 
group of employees, and that makes that, that's Abraham, and he makes how many? Okay, so we have four kings against five kings, and then Abraham comes along and he makes the tenth king. And then there is an eleventh king that comes at the very end of the chapter, the king of Salem, who is a perfect type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the last war that we have in the Bible is? Yeah, the Battle of Armageddon. And it is ten kings, right? It's involved with ten kings. And who comes at the very end of that war? The eleventh king, who is the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So, and Melchizedek is a perfect picture of him. So the first war is this war. The last war is the Battle of Armageddon. Very, very interesting. Now, even though the various kingdoms of this day, Abraham's day, were relatively small, consisting of what is commonly referred to as city-states, you know, that was kind of, that was the nations at that time were these city-states, yet this battle in Genesis 14 involved quite a few of them. As we just saw, nine of them, four against five, and then Abraham gets involved. So it was quite, really quite a significant military engagement for that day and time. Now, in light of today's situation in um, the Middle East, it's interesting that this coalition of the four invading kings of that first long-ago war were primarily located in the lands which are known today as Iran and Iraq. That's where these four invading kings came from. Today we call those lands Iran and Iraq. And the land they invaded, they invaded five kings, was the land of Canaan, which today is the land of Israel. So nothing much has changed, has it? They're still fighting. Although the methods of warfare have definitely changed because then they marched on foot, you know, and they just had swords. Now what do they have? Scud missiles. You know, so the methods of warfare have changed. But um, other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the Dead Sea War and the Desert Storm War, for example. So there's nothing much new under the sun. The lands involved remained the same. Well, after Lot had separated himself from Abraham and edged his way toward Sodom until he finally dwelled in it, which is what we find in this chapter, he's now living in Sodom, there were apparently some quiet years in the land of Canaan. Archaeologists have confirmed that there were relatively peaceful times in the lands all the way from uh, from Syria up north of Israel down to the Sinai Peninsula during Abraham's early years in Canaan, so relatively peaceful. However, the archaeologists have also discovered that that peace was suddenly broken by a coalition of kings who swept in on Israel. I wish I had a pencil. Got a pencil that I can point with better, a pen. <clears throat> They have discovered that this peace was disrupted by a coalition of kings which came over here from the lands of Iran and Iraq and uh, swept down on Canaan with devastating results. I mean, I read about what they've uncovered, and they found like 500,000 people buried in one cemetery. So these invading kings from over here, they, they have found that this truly was a true war that did take place in time. Of course, we know it's true, don't we? We have no problem with that because it's in the inspired word of God. According to scripture, there existed a confederacy of four eastern kings over here. 
and I've already read their names, so I won't read them again. As we find in verses 4 and 5, Keterlamer, that's a mouthful. Whenever you see C-H back in these old days, it's always pronounced as a K. Keterlamer was the leader of this four-king coalition, which came into Canaan apparently some 12 years earlier and had managed to place the citizens of Canaan into a situation of paying tribute or tax to them as overlords. Included among the city-states, which were therefore in a um, situation of bondage to the kings from Iran and Iraq or over in this area, were the five city-states of the um, Siddim Valley, which were at that time down here and, you know, down by the Desert Sea. I know you can't see that very well. I've got another map. Here's the Valley of Siddim is down here. And they don't believe the Dead Sea actually covered this last part. This probably happened after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, that more was added to the Dead Sea. But back in the time of Abraham, they believed that this was all land right here. Okay? But the, there were five major cities in this layer area of the Valley of Siddim, and those five cities were Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Adma, Zeboam, and Zoar. So those five cities down here. And the kings that came in from the east, this was their primary target, was to, um, to get those five cities because they are the ones that originally rebelled and said, we're tired of paying taxes to these four kings from far away, and we're just not going to pay anymore. By the way, the word Siddim means uh, fields. And back then, remember I told you this last time, that's why Lot wanted to move there. Now it's a terrible place to live. It's very desert and it's below sea level and it's hot. But back in Abraham's day, that, that was a very rich area where the fields were lush and it would be a good place for the cattle and the, and the sheep to graze. A lot of pasture lands down there. That was before it was destroyed with fire and brimstone. So for 12 years, the kings of, well, probably all of Canaan was paying taxes, but in particular these five cities down here in the Jordanian plain were paying tribute to Keterlamer from over, you know, in Babylon. So we find that the city which Lot had thought was so great and advantageous to move into was a city under bondage. And this is interesting because it gives us an example of how the world, now remember the world is represented by Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it shows us how the world is under bondage to sin. When Lot moved into Sodom, he was actually putting himself into bondage, wasn't he? The, the mere lifting up his eyes toward that city of sin and his flirtation with sin as he moved himself, first of all, you know, closer and closer and closer to the city, had eventually brought him into full-fledged bondage. They were all in bondage to these kings from the east. So Sodom had looked like it was wonderful. It had looked inviting and pleasant to the eyes, to Lot, because evil is just like that. Evil packages itself as exciting and uh, pleasant to the eyes and the, flat, the lust of the flesh. But the bondage is always there, isn't it? Always there. Well, after paying tribute to Ketelamer and his alliance for 12 years, 
As I said, these leaders of the city, the five cities down here in the Valley of Siddim, which is, this is all the Jordanian plain, uh, they decided that they had had enough of this. And so it says in verse 4, in the 13th year, they rebelled. At some point in time, that those five kings got together to form something like a mutual assistance coalition pact, and they agreed that they would fight together if their oppressors, their overlords, decided to attack because they now were refusing to pay their taxes to them any longer. And you know they did figure they probably would attack. And sure enough, they did. And when did they attack? They attacked, it tells us, in the 14th year. That's the beginning of verse 5. So there was insurrection in the Valley of Siddim as five city-states made it very clear that they would no longer pay tribute to the kings of Babylon and Elam. Now, we can imagine, then, that it would not have taken very long at all for word to reach the people of Canaan that a large coalition, very large coalition of um, four kings from the east was on the march westward. They were coming to protect their tax base, and they were also coming over to protect the trade routes, which ran through Canaan north and south and east and west. And by the way, the trade routes that went through Canaan um, intersected right here at the Valley of Siddim. So, you know, you had a trade route that went from over in Egypt to Babylon here, and then one that went north from Syria down this way into um, the Sinai. And they intersected right here. And so Sodom and Gomorrah were very, very critical cities to these kings of the east. And that's why they came, marched all the way over, and their primary target was going to be um, the five city-states and primarily Sodom and Gomorrah, which apparently were the largest of the five. So let's look at the raid of the four kings, and for this we'll look at verses 5 to 12. In the 14th year came Keterlaomer and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims and Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zuzims, ever heard of those guys before? The Zuzims <laughs> in uh, Ham, and the Emims in Sheva Kirathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, unto Alparan, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to and Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim with Ketelaomer, the king of Elam, with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. I thought victuals was a southern term. Vittles? Oh, victuals. Vittles. Is that how you pronounce it? Vittles? 
oh well, I'm from the north, victuals, <laughs> and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, see, now he's in, he was in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. This is a little confusing, so let me try to explain it. Ketelamer and the three other kings with him, you know, from the east, not only directed their anger against the five cities of the Jordanian plain, but they directed their anger against everyone else of any significance who came across them on their journey. Well, I mean, they came across on their journey. So from southern Syria, way up here in Damascus, from up here all the way down to Edom and central Sinai, actually, they raged in fury and annihilation. And they did. I mean, they literally plundered and uh, ravaged and left in ruins every single uh, city and village that they came across. According to Nelson Gluick, who was a leading Palestinian archaeologist, he said that even the countryside was laid in waste by these invading kings. And for hundreds of years afterward, that entire area was like an abandoned cemetery. So these guys were brutal, and they were also brilliant. They were brilliant in their strategy. As I said, the primary target of Ketelamer was apparently the two leading cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But first of all, what he did was he made a wide sweep. See, he's coming in from over here in the east, you know, and then he comes down and he makes a wide sweep. Actually, I've got other maps, but he comes all the way around the bottom of the Dead Sea um, and then goes back this up north a little bit to En Gedi, which is over here, and then he swoops down. On the, on the five cities of the Valley of Siddim. So what he is doing is, uh, like, little by little, he is um, drawing in the net, or he's putting the, the, the um, noose around their neck. He's tightening in, and he's, he's making sure that he defeats anyone who could be a source of assistance when, they, when he finally comes in to battle with the five kings of the Valley of Siddim. He's making sure that he wipes out anybody around that whole area who could possibly assist them. And who are some of the ones that he defeats? Well, it tells us the Rephaims, and uh, that was up here in what is called in our Bible, Ashtaroth Carnaim, way up north here. It's just right east of the Dead Sea. And the Rephaims means in Hebrew, strong ones. So if they were strong and these other guys defeated them, they were even stronger. And then there were the Zuzims who lived at this place named Ham. And obviously the name of the city or village, whatever it was, was named after Ham, one of the sons of Noah. And the Zuzims, that name means powerful ones. So we have the strong ones up here in Carnaim, and then we have the powerful ones. And they were probably the same as the Zamzumim. And you can read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 2, where they're actually described as this, quote, a people great and many and tall. Your kind of people, Terry. Tall. And they were conquered at Ham, which is 40 miles southwest of Carnaim. And next they conquered the uh, Emims, which means the terrible ones. Look who was occupying the land of Canaan. The strong ones, the uh, powerful ones, the tall ones, and now the terrible ones. 
awful names for these people. But they were, remember now, they're Canaanites. They're not believers. They're Canaanites. But these kings crush all of these horrible people, these strong people. So they're even stronger and they're more powerful and they're more terrible. And then it says that he defeated the uh, Horites, which are down here sort of off the map, down in Mount Seir, which is now known as the country of Eden, Edom. They were the next ones to be crushed by these invading kings. And last, then it says they overthrew those who came to be known as the Amalekites. To deal with them, it says that Ketelamer had gone back up to the northeast. That's what it means when it says he was returning. I forget where. Verse 7, the beginning of verse 7. It says, and they returned. And I think maybe at that point in time, the five kings of the Siddim Valley might, might have thought, oh, good, they're leaving. Because they swooped around, and then they started going back up north to get the, um, the um, uh, Malachites. But they didn't. They were just, as I said, they were just tightening in the net. And they got up north, and then they were going to come swooping down on the five kings. So all of that, I know it's very complicated, and I can't appreciate it as much as a man. Men love this kind of war stuff, but I wanted to give you a little bit of the picture here. But this was really excellent strategy. They were not only brilliant, I mean brutal, they were brilliant in their strategy. So the four eastern kings had successfully smashed all possible resistance for, the, I mean assistance for the five kings. And they were ready to swoop down and tighten the noose around their necks. And uh, actually, all of this, if you think about it from God's perspective, because he's sovereign and he's the one who's in control, even of evil kings and even of wars, he was really using this um, army of Ketelamer, this was God's scourge, to cleanse the wicked cities of the plains and also to cleanse all these wicked people along the way. Because they were idol worshipers. They had strayed from the truth of faith in, one, in, a, in God, the true God. And also, as, as they were going and being used as God's scourge, had any of them at all turned to him, turned to God in repentance and called upon him for protection, what do you think God would have done? I think he would have protected them. I think he would have spared them. But they didn't look to him. They merely looked to one another for assistance and help, and they also, I'm sure, made offerings to their false gods. So because of that, they all got wiped out. The five defending kings now down here of the plain went out together when they finally realized that there was uh, nothing that they could do but then to go to battle with the four kings from the east. They went out to meet them so they met together in the Valley of Siddim, right here, where you see that little, um, that's where the battle took place, right there, that little star shape. The five kings, now think of this, the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and Adma and Zobit, Zoabim, or whatever it was called, they must have thought that they really stood probably a, at least a pretty good chance of victory. Why? Well, because they probably reasoned to themselves that after all, they were five kings and their enemy was only four. So they, you know, maybe outnumbered him a little bit. And also the enemy had been fighting for a long time by this point. So perhaps they would be fatigued from battle. Furthermore, the invaders, by the time they had, you know, done all this conquering and gotten down here for the actual battle, they were laden 
down, they were heavily laden with all the plunder and the spoil that they had taken from the many tribes and villages which they had raided. And then, too, the men fighting with the five kings of the plain were fighting for their own homes and uh, for their own families because this was right in their territory. And that generally gives added zeal to an army's fortitude, right? When you're fighting for your own home and your own family. So they were fighting on their own home turf, we could say, which would also mean that they were close to their own supplies. And they would know the landscape better than the invading four kings, including a knowledge of the location of the Siddim Valley slime pits. Remember we read about that? That's what, those were um, asphalt pits. They would know where those slime pits were located, and if they were wise in their strategy, the coalition of the five, five hometown kings could perhaps get the enemy troops bogged down in those slimy asphalt pits and then win the war. However, for all the advantages that the five Siddim Valley kings had, it was an easy victory for, who do you think? Ketalamer. He won, I mean, in one verse, he won the battle. Interestingly enough, it was actually the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah who fell into the slime pits. <laughs> if you remember me reading that, if not, go back and look at it. But they're the ones who fell into or else they hid from the enemy in those slime pits. Those of their armies who were fortunate enough to avoid being killed, they fled where? They fled over uh, to the west into the mountains over here. See, this is where Abraham is. He's over near Hebron, remember? And if I had a topographical kind of a map that would show you mountains, there's, there's mountains over here. So those that didn't get killed fled to the mountains. It's, there seems to be some kind of poetic justice or divine justice, I think, in the fact that it was the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah who, fell, who ended up in the slime pits of Siddim. Those two cities were populated by what kind of people? Remember what we read in Genesis 13, 13? What kind of people? Exceedingly wicked sinners before the Lord, it said. They were people who were living in the miry slime of their own sin. Their hearts were exceedingly wicked before the Lord God, and their sins were a horrible stench in his nostrils. So it's actually very fitting to see that it was them, the kings that represented those two cities, who fell into the slime pits and were covered with crusty layers of slime. Very interesting. It was like to demonstrate their filthiness within, God saw to it that they were covered with a filthiness without. Now, why was it that the five kings fell so easily and so completely when all of the advantages actually seemed to be theirs? Well, if you think about it, the answer isn't really that difficult at all. The citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and those other three cities or city-states were living what kind of lifestyles? Very wicked lifestyles. And many of them, remember, were homosexuals. 
and generally homosexuals do not make the greatest soldiers. I'll probably get in trouble for that statement, but I think it's true. Furthermore, their exceeding wickedness translates into what? Drunkenness, uh, adultery, fornication, selfishness, laziness, idolatry, and self-pleasure through every other conceivable way. So, you know, it's true that it's, it's very difficult to pamper the bodily appetites and lay around in nightclubs and booze it up and, you know, cloud the brain with alcohol and then see and think clearly the next morning on a battlefield, right? Of course. It, it's interesting that we read over in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, we read specifically this statement about the citizens of Sodom. It says that they, were, they had, quote, an abundance of idleness. That's right from Ezekiel, an abundance of idleness. So you can see why they were so easily defeated. The four kings under Ketileomer easily won the Dead Sea War. And it says in verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, <laughs> and they went their way. They would have been able now, they've won the war, okay? So they would have been able to go back to their homes with victory banners flying and all kinds of increased goods which they had collected not only from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three city-states in the Siddim Valley, but from all those other villages and all those other peoples that they had raided on their way south. They would have been able to go back with complete victory if... They had not made one slight little mistake. And what was that? Let's look at verse 12. This is, speaks of their one little mistake. It says, and they took Lot. Uh-oh, bad news for Ketileomer. <laughs> they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and they took his goods and they departed. Ketileomer and his crowd were about to get the surprise of their lives. <laughs> they had no idea that a strange nomadic rancher who, just like themselves, was not even a native of Canaan but had also come from over in uh, Babylon, you know, the area of the Chaldees, they had no idea that he was roused to action because they had taken his dead brother's son as a prisoner of war. They would never, Ketileomer and his people would never ever have thought that one man was even a factor to be considered in their war plans. And truthfully, you know, Abraham would not have been a factor to have been considered or worth reckoning with if it had not been for the God he worshipped. So the God of Abraham had made a promise, right? And when he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. What had he promised Abraham back over in Genesis 12, 3? Right. Let me get that little picture. He said, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. Unknown to them. Ketileomer and his crowd had put themselves on the wrong side of that promise because they had just taken a member, captive a member of Abraham's family. 
So like the Egyptian pharaoh who had unknowingly taken Abraham's wife, Sarah, and consequently suffered the curse, not only on himself but on his own household, Ketileomer and the other three kings from the east uh, had unknowingly carried off Abraham's nephew. So we now turn to see how Abraham reacted to this newest test in his life. Uh, Two tests, actually, the test of compassion and the test of courage. Also, we'll look at the test of completion. So let's read about the farmer who turned fighter in verses 13 to 16. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, first time we see the word Hebrew in the Bible, told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother, notice not his nephew, but his brother, why is it his brother? Because they're both believers. That his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, that's the number of them, and pursued them unto Dan, which is way up in the northern part of Israel. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus which is up in Syria. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. The rescue by Abraham. Lot had permitted one step toward Sodom to lead to another. And as we discussed in our last lesson, uh, he did this until he actually lived within one of the filthiest cities that has ever existed on earth as far as its sin is concerned. Map up here. So like the um, slime pits outside of the city, the treacherous, slimy quicksand within the city had sucked Lot into it. So when the citizens of that city were taken captive and all their possessions were raided by Ketileomer, Lot was dragged along with the rest of them. So what was he tasting here? He was tasting the fruit of his bad decision to fellowship with the world. He had become a prisoner of war. He would be made a slave to serve the enemy. And this was actually God's way of chastening Lot. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he loved Lot. Lot was his child. He was trying to show Lot that as a believer, he had no business at all living in Sodom. Lot was his child regardless of his carnal nature, and God did love him. So this was chastening on the part of God. No doubt also Abraham had been praying for Lot. You know Abraham was listening to the the daily news and hearing what was going on with Ketileomer and all of that. So he, I'm sure, had been praying for Lot, and so God preserved him and his family from harm, and he sent Abraham to his rescue. Many of the inhabitants and warriors of the invaded five cities of Siddim would have managed to escape death and captivity. They all didn't get killed. You know, many of them did escape. And we are already told that some of the soldiers uh, with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had actually gone into the mountains to hide. Well, one such escapee came to Abram. 
the Hebrew in order to report what had happened. And this is the first mention, as I said, of the name Hebrew in all the scripture. Remember where we learned that that word came from back when we studied Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations? It actually came from um, the great-grandson of Shem, Shem being one of the sons of Noah, through whom the messianic seed would continue. And uh, his name was Eber, and that is where they got the name Hebrew from Eber, the great-grandson of Shem, and also a direct ancestor of Abraham. The term also came to mean the man from beyond the river, speaking of the fact that uh, Abraham who was the first one to be called a Hebrew, came from beyond the river. He came from the other side of the Euphrates River. So the term Hebrew actually came from Eber, but it came to mean those from the other side or those who crossed over. It it meant essentially that he was Abraham the outsider. Now this first mention of the term Hebrew is clearly used to delineate Abraham from the other inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You know, the term Hebrew actually came to be used uh, when the Jewish people or even the Gentiles were speaking about them in contrast to to, to other peoples. So it was used by both Jews and Gentiles to make a distinction between the Hebrews and the Gentiles. Whereas the term Israelites was used exclusively by the Jews themselves to speak of themselves. So the term Hebrew was used by anyone to distinguish them from the rest of the world, whereas Israelite was just referred, you know, used by Israelites themselves when speaking to one another. And where did the term Jew come from? It came from the word Judah, and it it is become the most popular word to speak of the uh, Hebrew people. Now, it's interesting that the mentioned escapee of this Dead Sea War knew about Abraham. It's interesting that uh, even though he was an Amorite, he had heard about Abraham. Probably because, well, for one possibility, because Abraham dwelt among the Amorites. And the plain, he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite. And apparently, Abraham had established some kind of a mutually protected protective confederation with this man named Mamre and his two brothers, Anner and Eshcol. Uh, they were friends, they were neighbors, and they were, they were um, mutually understanding of one another. doesn't tell us that they became believers, but they had a thing going where they were, you know, protecting one another. So maybe this escapee heard of Abraham because he also was an Amorite and knew that he lived with Uh, the Amorites, or it may be that he had heard of Abraham from Lot. Perhaps we can give Lot some benefit of the doubt and uh, speculate that he may have spoken of Abraham and of his God even, the Sodomites. And maybe this one individual believed enough of what Lot said about his God and about what his God had done for Abraham and Sarah when they went down to Egypt that he ran to Abraham to get help now that they had been defeated so utterly. So maybe, I mean, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but maybe this was one bit of good fruit in the life of Lot. But at that, we're only guessing. The escapee does serve to warn us, or to, I mean, not to warn us, but to give us an important truth um, about the fact that worldlings 
may oftentimes go to Christians for help when they really get, you know, in trouble. The man who had either been a citizen or a warrior of Sodom ran to who for help? He ran to the believer. He ran to Abraham for help. He didn't run to someone from Gomorrah. He didn't run to someone from Zoar. He didn't run to those some of those soldiers who were hiding in the mountains. He did not even run and seek the help of his own Amorite people, uh, Mamre or Eshkol or Aner, those three brothers. Neither did he go to the Canaanites, other Canaanites or Perizzites. He went straight to Abraham. You know, this teaches us that Christians do not have to mingle or be popular with the world in order to be of help to the world. Although Abraham's lifestyle and Abraham's convictions about things would have been scorned and they would have been ridiculed and mocked if he had, you know, lived in Sodom, And even if they heard about him, they would have mocked him. And he would have been very, very unpopular. Yet he was sought when the city was in serious trouble. And this kind of scene is often repeated today. Is it not? Isn't it? Is it not, I should say? It is. I mean, oftentimes, you know, if you work in somewhere with people who are not Christians, they might, behind your back, say things about how how you have no fun in your life and you're so narrow-minded and uh, they might scoff you and ridicule you. Even to your face, they might do it. But if they get in serious trouble, oftentimes, who's the first one they, they call and ask for prayer or ask for your advice or whatever it would be to a Christian. So that's what we have an example of here in the fact that the escapee ran straight to Abraham. Well, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, and I think it is interesting that it says his brother, it doesn't say his nephew, I think we're seeing here um, a contrast to Cain, who murdered his brother and then said to God, am I my brother's keeper, you know, sarcastically? Was Abraham, did he believe he was his brother's keeper? Yes, he did. And so he took action. This was not merely because Lot was his nephew. It was because Lot was a fellow believer. So he would have done this for any believer, not just because he was a relative. He was putting into practice Galatians 6, 1 and 2, which says, Brethren, if a man be taken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one, In the spirit of what? Meekness. I mean, if somebody's fallen, a brother or sister in Christ has fallen, and you go to them to restore them, you don't go with pride, shaking your finger, you know. You go in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And it goes on and says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Even though Lot had been very selfish in taking first choice in land, and he had been very wrong in choosing Sodom as his home, yet Abraham demonstrated grace and unconditional love for his fallen brother. You know, he could have, think about it, what he could have done. Abraham could have just shrugged his shoulders and thought to himself that Lot was only getting what he deserved. I mean, don't we do that a lot of time? Well, they're just getting what they deserve. He could have rationalized that God was sovereignly dealing with Lot 
and he shouldn't get involved in it. You know, we see somebody falling, we say, well, they're getting what they deserve. Plus, God's sovereign, and he is just chastening them, so I better stay out of it. He also could have easily told himself that there was no possible way that he could go to battle with those four kings and their mighty armies when they had just finished wiping out almost the whole country, you know, everything from uh, southern Syria down to Edom. If the five kings of the plains, with all their mighty armies and and, uh, arms, could not conquer them, then what in the world would make him think he possibly could do anything? And why should he risk his life, and why should he risk the lives of all his servants to rescue this greedy, disrespectful nephew of his who had shown no appreciation for his uncle's help and guidance over all the many years since his own father's death? You see how easy it would be to rationalize and talk yourself out of helping a fallen brother? And furthermore, he could have said to himself, Well, I'm a believer, And I'm supposed to be a peacemaker. I did very well last week when I made peace between the striving herdsmen. I am not to uh, uh, get involved in the affairs of the world. I am separate from the world. I'm not to go to war. You know, there's a lot of people who believe in pacifism, that uh, Christians shouldn't even go to war. He should say, I'm separate from, uh, he could have said, uh, I'm separate from this world. I'm a peacemaker. I am not a soldier. I am not going to entangle myself in the wars between these four kings and the five kings. God did not call me to be a fighter. I'm simply a farmer or a rancher. But did Abraham say any of these things? No, he didn't say any of these things, not even to himself or to anyone else. He had learned grace in his walk with the Lord, and grace is never selfish. He had not been selfish, remember, when he had genuinely offered Lot first choice of land, and he would not now be selfish by putting his own interests and perhaps his past grievances with Lot above Lot's desperate need. Abraham here was truly, truly being Christ-like in his attitude toward rescuing Lot. I mean, think about it. We really, every one of us, have been just like Lot. We have been selfish toward God. We have been ungrateful to him. And at times we have uh, separated ourselves from him in order to choose our own way. And just as Lot had, uh, all of this, just as Lot had treated his uncle Abraham, we have treated God. And yet, in spite of our disobedience, what has God done? His unconditional love and his grace have caused him, or did cause him, to even put his own life on the line in order to rescue us. So it says that without hesitation, Abraham armed and assembled an army made up of his trained servants. Verse 14. Although Abraham was separated from the world, this did not mean that he was isolated. We're to be separate from the world, but we're not to be isolated from the world. There's a big difference there. Even though he may have been independent, he was not indifferent. As Christians, we can come up with all the same kinds of excuses that Abraham could have come up with to avoid going to someone's rescue. But you know, those excuses, when it comes to you and I, 
will not stand up as valid when we stand before God. They're just, they're just what we said they are. <laughs> they're excuses. As believers with the good news of John 3.16, we are faced not only with a world which is dying and going to an eternity without God, but we are frequently faced, frequently, just about every week, day, almost. We are faced with the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ who are daily being carried off as captives of the enemy due, yes, due to their own bad choices and their own lusts. But nevertheless, we are accountable to do something about it. We can't just sit idly by and give the excuse that we have our own families and we have our own affairs and problems to tend to and we just don't have time, we cannot be bothered. We can't give the excuse either that our puny little efforts won't rescue anybody. I mean, Abraham could have said that easily. Oh, I've got 318 men. What's that? That's a puny little effort. It won't. We can't do that. We can't rationalize that they are only getting what they deserve. Uh, and neither can we salve our conscience by sending someone else. You know, oh, that person's in trouble, trouble so I'll call up the pastor or um, the Sunday school teacher or my friend so-and-so. I'm sure they'll be glad to go. Or we can't salve our conscience by giving money. You know, and sending someone else to do it. Like Abraham, we are to get involved ourselves in rescuing the perishing and in rescuing our brothers and sisters who have become prisoners of war to their own sin. Now, although, as we saw in chapter 13, Abraham was a man of peace, yet he was also a man who was prepared for what? Prepared for battle. Unlike the soft Sodomites who were abundantly idle, as we read in Ezekiel 16, Abraham had been redeeming his time very wisely. He wasn't just laying around being idle. He redeemed his time wisely because he had been training those born in his own house. Look at verse 14. Those born in his own house to be what? To be soldiers. What are you to be doing if you still have children at home? be training those in your own house to be soldiers for God, soldiers of the light. He taught them about putting on armor for battle and about using their weapons to battle the enemy. What would their weapons be in the spiritual sense? Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer, our two primary weapons. So these would have been men who had grown up in Abraham's house. That would mean that, you know, perhaps even since he dwelt over in Ur of the Chaldees, men who had grown up in uh, Terah, his father's home, and, or maybe some who had been born when they lived in Haran. But these were men that were brought up in Abraham's family, in his home. They weren't his blood but they were with him all their lives. And therefore, what would he know about them? He would know them. He would know their loyalty. He would know their trustworthiness. And, and they probably also knew his God. And so this means that Abraham did not use the Egyptian men servants who had been given over to him when he was in Egypt, when he was down in Egypt, because they didn't grow up in his home. 
He did not use them in this battle. Why do you think that would be? Well, he hadn't known them that long. He didn't know if they were trustworthy. They might have had a different purpose in going out, not to rescue a brother in Christ, but to get plunder for themselves. Also, they probably didn't worship his God. Maybe some of them did, but most of them still have worshipped their false gods. So this speaks to us spiritually of the importance of those born in the household of God being prepared for conflict with our enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world. It says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. It also speaks of being prepared for battle by knowing how to use our weapons of warfare, the word of God, and prayer. Our weapons of warfare are spiritual and not fleshly, it tells us. So like a good shepherd or pastor of his flock should do, Abraham had properly trained his people for battle. That's what a pastor should do in a church, train his people for battle. He had trained them to follow orders, and he had trained them to be courageous soldiers for God. His confidence, really, in going to battle against so formidable a foe had to have come from what? Why was he so confident and courageous in going to battle? Because of his faith in God's earlier promises. God had promised that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. He had promised him that all the families would be blessed. He had promised to make of him a great nation. He had promised to curse those that cursed him, bless those. So he had all these promises. He knew that God wasn't going to let him go to battle and be wiped out. He had to, he had to live. God had, he'd already seen God come to his rescue when he messed up in Egypt. So his confidence and his courage came from his faith in God. And so he would have taught his people, his soldiers, to also trust in God's word. Now, it's incredible that with only 318 men, and probably also the Amorites, Mamre, Aner, and Eshcol, and perhaps a handful of their servants, because they were in this little confederation together where they decided to support one another, that with just these few men, Abraham set out to travel approximately 120 miles up to Dan in order to make a surprise attack on the enemy, the um, armies of the four kings of the east. And the size of Abraham's army, we could compare to who do you think of in the Bible? Um, his army being 318 against this huge, massive force of Ketalamer would be comparable, I've heard it, yes, to Gideon's 300 against 135,000 Midianites. So there's a lot of similarity between Abraham's battle and Gideon's battle. They both, you know, divide and make it look like there's a lot more of them. They both attack by night. They both have only 300 soldiers against a huge army. So to the world, they would have looked absolutely suicidal. But what the world could not see was that God with the, was with them, just like God was with Gideon. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Abraham showed tremendous wisdom in his strategy against his enemy. Did he choose loyal and trained men to help him, but he also wisely participated himself. You know, he didn't stay behind, even though at this point in age he's getting to be rather old. 
he actually led the rescue attempt. And that's, that's important. That's good. That was where David failed, right? King David. He sent the army out and he stayed home and then he got into trouble. But Abraham led the rescue effort and everyone was united. There was only one king. What do you think could be a problem when there's five kings or four kings? Everybody wants to be chief and nobody wants to be uh, Indian. (laughs) But here there was only one Abraham, one king, and there was only one army. And they were all united in their, uh, under their leader, just like, you know, we're all united under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were united under one leader and they all had the same purpose, which was to rescue the captives. That should be our purpose, too those who have been uh, captivated by sin. Their motive was not for personal gain or revenge, which always creates division. When you have an army that's like out in the world that wants gain, personal gain and personal uh, possessions, then you have division. Often the problem within a church is that there are too many who want to be king and not enough who are willing to enlist as soldiers. Well, when Abraham found the enemy encamped up here at Dan, he divided his men, we're told, in verse 14, and he instructed them to attack from several different locations. This would cause Ketelamer's army to think that they're unexpected invaders. See, they weren't expecting anyone. So that they, now they would think that they were much larger in number than the army actually was because they would be coming down upon them or at them <clears throat> from all different directions. Furthermore, Abraham launched his surprise attack when? Right, under the cover of darkness. The enemy would be unable to see who it was attacking them and how large they really were. Because if they saw how large they really were, it would have been a wipeout. Now, think about Ketelamer's troops. At this point in time, they would be relaxing and enjoying the spoils of their victories. Thought of an attack from anyone would have been one of the last things on their minds. After all, who was left to attack them? They had crushed everyone of any consequence, or so they thought. And there would be no army left, which was even remotely large enough to even think of trying to challenge them. Now, because they had been marching and fighting for so long, we don't know how long, but it would have been a long time, they would be weary. And they may have even been and probably were half drunk. It was nighttime, and they may have also been enjoying some of the numerous female captives who had been carried along as spoils of warfare. So when Abraham's um, army suddenly and shockingly came upon them in the midst of the night from all directions, they were totally unprepared. All they could think to do, because there was no time to plan any kind of a strategy, all they could think to do was what? Flee, get out of there. Now, another very wise thing which Abraham did was that he pursued them. I mean, they started running. And he pursued them all the way to Damascus in um, Syria, which was approximately 60 miles on foot. 
He pursued them. He was not content with just partial victory. He could have just chased them out of Canaan, but he did. He wasn't content with that. He made sure that Ketelamer and his troops were so far out of Canaan that they would not return. He chased his enemy until they were completely defeated and scattered, and all the enslaved, all the captives had been set free, and all the booty was left behind. Because if you're trying to run for your life, you're not going to be carrying all this gold and everything with you. You're going to drop it behind. So those uh, those of the four king confederation who were not slain in this pursuit would have straggled back to their homelands in total amazement. It just in a daze at this mysterious and unexpected end to what had been such a long wave of victories and conquests. I mean, they went back with nothing. After, who knows, a year maybe they'd been out on the battlefield. And they came back with absolutely nothing, just happy to even have their lives, those of them who survived. How often is the world exactly like Ketelamer's army? Think about it. People are so loaded down with the things of this world and they are so engulfed in relaxation and in satisfying their selfish appetites and in living in darkness that they take no time to think about their eternal security. And so they are taken in great surprise when suddenly confronted with their enemy. Who's their enemy? Death. They attempt to run from it because they are totally unprepared for it. And to run is all they know to do because they haven't taken out the time to plan a strategy. And yet they discover, no matter how far they run, it eventually catches them and it takes from them every bit of spoil they have ever, ever gained in their long conquest to get fame and fortune. And the even sadder truth is that they don't just merely return home with their tails between their legs, tucked between their legs. They go into a godless eternity from whence there is no escape and no relief. Well, verse 16 tells us that Abraham brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. His success was both miraculous and it was complete. Now, once Lot was freed by his uncle Abraham, we might wonder if they did not have a long, long talk on the way back home. I mean, they had to travel all the way from Damascus back to Hebron. Did Lot even thank Abraham for rescuing him? We don't know. doesn't say he did. Did Lot keep any of the promises to the Lord that he may well have made while he was in captivity? You know, they call those uh, fox, foxhole promises when he was in deep trouble and thought he was going to be a slave the rest of his life. Did he make all kinds of promises to God? Well, and did he keep them? We, we don't know if he made promises. What we do know is that the Lord's warning to him, this was all a warning. We know that the Lord's warning and the Lord's chastening and the Lord's goodness in rescuing him did absolutely no good for Lot. Because what did he choose to do? 
he chose to go right back to Sodom. Pretty amazing. I mean, he could have chosen to remain with Abraham in, in uh, Hebron, but he didn't do that. Perhaps Lot told the Lord that this time I will really, really be a witness to the Sodomites. You know, maybe that was his thinking. Uh, This time he would remain with them in order to repeatedly remind them of all that the Lord had done for them by rescuing them in this amazing and miraculous victory with uh, Abraham. But regardless of what his reasoning might have been, Lot again chose wrong. Even after this severe chastening, he again made the same decision. Why was that? Because he was still too attached to Sodom. He returned there, but he did prove to be too weak spiritually to be any kind of a testimony. If that was his thinking, to go back and be a testimony and a witness to the Sodomites, he was too weak spiritually to do that. And uh, in his next chastening from the Lord, he would lose it all, and he would never, ever regain it. The incredible victory of one man, Abraham, and his very small army over the fierce and ruthless four-king force of Ketelamer was nothing less than what? A miracle. It was really a miracle of God. The Lord was not only keeping his promise to Abraham to curse those who cursed him, and he was not only answering Abraham's prayers for the rescue of his nephew, but he was chastening Lot, and he was even warning all the unbelieving uh, Canaanites to get themselves right with him. Uh, Their pagan gods had done them absolutely no good whatsoever in their battles against the enemy. I'm sure that they prayed and offered sacrifices and all kinds of things to their false gods, but their false gods had proven totally impotent in rescuing them. It was the God of Abraham who had come to the rescue. And all the various tribes of the land of Canaan should have recognized that, and who should they have therefore worshipped? They should have worshipped the one and only true God, the God of Abraham. And we don't know, perhaps some did. I'd like to think that there was some fruit from this war, this Dead Sea War. Well, next week we're going to look at Abraham as this, this week he encountered nine kings. Next week we're going to see him encounter two kings. Very interesting. Uh, king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And again, there'll be a test. You know, a lot of times... The most difficult tests come after the battle. Well, he's going to have a test next week, another one. Because once you're in the school of faith, you're always in the school of faith. And you'll get all your life one test, one examination after another. Thank you for your patience. I know this was a difficult lesson. We're stopping right at 1130. Oh, boy. (laughs) Let's pray.